Like, I've had it too. Yeah. I will. I would have been upset. At me? No, at myself. But I'd, like, oh, I remember what you said, but I remember that you never like, said anything, so. Okay. What were you going to say? Oh, I was going to confess something that I guess you can just find out by reading this. It's a little short. <laughs> it's, I chose to do Dunn's shortest poem, and as a result, but it embodies the poem. Right. And paper. I'm really. Yeah. Just listen to the So it's. Yeah. It's self describing. It's self describing. Thank you. It's a metaphysical conceit. Oh my god. It's giving me a lot more credit. Well. Right. Loves paper. All right, so it's our last day on Johnson. I should, so I think what we'll do next is um, Herrick. And I think what you should do is read um, all of the Herrick in here from Hesperides. That is, um, Herrick wrote two books. They were kind of, they, they were a pair. Um, and um, one of them, the first one uh, begins... on page one um, 81 of the Norton and um, what you should do is read through page 219 um, so that's 38 pages for I think what? That's a, sorry I don't I have a different edition I think what's his full name and Bobby Robert Herrick Robert Herrick Robert Herrick those who know him call him Bobby, but no one knows him because everyone knew him is dead. So Robert. Um, so 181 to 219. Um, what you will see is that um, there are some more poems after that from pages 220 to 224. Um, that's from a book called His Noble Numbers, which he published um, basically at the same time as Hesperides. And His Noble Numbers are his serious and religious poems, and Hesperides are his... Um, delightful and, and um, um, wonderful poems. And no one really reads anything from his noble numbers. Um, uh, what he's famous for, what he's remembered for, rightly so, is Hesperides. So if you want to read his noble numbers, that's fine. You know, they're, they're great. Of course they're great. How could they fail to be great? They're just not as great. Um, and then, uh, so we'll talk about Herrick maybe just next Tuesday, and then we'll um, go on to Herbert um, so, and spend three classes. Actually, we won't spend three classes on Herbert unless we do a makeup class, because next Friday I'm going to be at a conference. That is a week from today. Um, so we will figure out at some point um, when we can have an optional makeup. Um, and I stress makeup, and I don't stress optional. Um, so it'll probably be during, you guys have two reading days this semester, which is very, very rare. Um, so it'll probably be during one of those reading days, this optional makeup class, um, uh, which will be good for you, right? Right. Okay, good. Um, let us, um, are we happy to be leaving Ben Johnson? You'll be glad when you're reading Herrick. Um, even if you like Johnson, you'll like Herrick more, but are we happy? To be reading Johnson, leaving Johnson, reading Johnson, which makes us happier? <laughs> not sad. Don't You're mourn. not sad. Don't You're not mourning. mourning. All right. Well, I want to, basically, we started talking on Tuesday, and 
Um, I want to spend most of today um, talking about Johnson and the ode, um, and in particular to his most important ode, which is known as the Carrie Morrison ode. That's the one that starts on page 140 here. Um, and it's a pretty amazing poem, um, although it's got the um, drawback that a lot of um, Johnson's poems do for modern readers, which is it's very topical. That is, he writes poems about and to and in memory of people he knows and for people who've known them, who know those people. And therefore, um, uh, it's hard to immediately say, oh, yes, I want to read this poem because obviously it's for all time and it will be moving to me. Um, but it is worth um, reading it carefully. I wanted to start, though, by looking at the Epithalamian, which is on page 144. Um, its full title is... You could, you could, if you want, instead of writing a paper, you could memorize this title. Um, just kidding. Well, you'd have to get it right or you'd fail. Epithalamian or... The whale. No. Epithalamian or a song celebrating the nuptials of that noble gentleman, Mr. Jerome Weston, son and heir of the Lord Weston, Lord High Treasurer of England, with, that is the nuptials of Jerome Weston, with the Lady Frances Stewart, da Stewart, daughter of Esme, with love and squalor, Duke of Lennox. Most of you don't get that. Um, yeah. How many people don't get that? or Esme with Love and Squalor, could be J.D. Salinger's best story um, for Esme with Love and Squalor. Um, totally great, wonderful story. Um, with the Lady Frances Stewart, daughter of Esme, Duke of Lennox, deceased, that is Esme is, and sister of the surviving Duke of the same name. So an epithalamian is a marriage poem, and it's a poem that is written in honor of the fact that um, people are getting married. Um, it was introduced into English by Spencer, who wrote a poem called Epithalamian. Um, and um, it's um, a description, essentially, of the marriage day followed by the marriage night. And what Spencer did in his Epithalamian, um, which is quite amazing, um, is it's essentially in 24 verses, the first 16 verses. He's married in the summer. The first 16 verses are daylight verses, um, and the last eight um, verses are nighttime verses, so that it's 16 hours of daylight, eight hours of um, nighttime. Um, it's got, if I recall correctly, it, it matters, but it doesn't matter, um, 365 long lines, and um, I believe it's 52 short lines. So in every way, it's referring to time frames. And the idea of an epithalamian is that at the beginning of a marriage, it is um, describing um, the marriage in terms of the huge temporal rhythms of human life, um, the day, the week, the year, um, all the things that go to making up a lifetime and then making up um, the time of a marriage, the days together, the hours together, the days together, the weeks together, the years together. Um, and what um, Spencer does and what Johnson is imitating in Spencer, Johnson is about 20 years um, younger than Spencer. Um, the uh, series of great poets of the time who knew each other or at least interlocked with each other are Sidney and Spencer are both born around 1551. 
um, and Spencer revered Sidney. Um, Sidney died young. Um, Johnson revered the Sidney family. Um, then comes Shakespeare, um, who read Spencer, probably didn't know him, but he might have, it's just not clear, um, but certainly read him um, and used um, material from the Epithalamian in A Midsummer Night's Dream. Um, and then, um, eight years after Shakespeare, um, comes come Dunn and Johnson, and as you know from the reading that you did for today, um, Johnson was one of the people who wrote a commendatory, commendatory verses on Shakespeare for the first folio, um, where he talks about how great Shakespeare is. Um, some of uh, the most famous lines about Shakespeare are in those commendatory verses. Um, that he's not an age, of an age, but for all time, for example. But also that he had little Latin and less Greek, um, which is, you know, Johnson says, well, it doesn't really matter that he was essentially illiterate, um, unlike me, Johnson. Um, but, um, th but there's a lot of interaction among those poets. So Johnson is doing something similar to what Spencer has done in the Epithalamian, which is he's describing the day of the marriage followed by um, the night, um, followed by the wedding night. So there's everyone coming to celebrate the marriage, then there's the marriage itself, and then there's what follows the marriage, which is the bride and the groom go off together. Um, and um, you'll recall Johnson says we, we're not going to use coarse language to describe what they're going to do because we don't do that sort of thing in England, but if we were in Rome, we would. Um, so you can guess what they're doing because all I have to do is tell you that go read some Roman poetry and you'll know. Um, and uh, you probably don't need <laughs> a lot of Latin to guess what they're going to be doing. Um, but it's really brilliantly, <laughs> sorry? He said unless Greek. <laughs> <laughs> unless Greek, yes. Um, but he's, um, the conceit, um, the idea, the structure of the epithalamian is just a really neat one. Um, and I thought we'd just go, we'd look at the first stanza here, um, which, is, um, an, which is an address, an apostrophe to the sun, S-U-N, sun. Um, and um, the idea is, do people remember the poem? It's the kind of poem that you might read quickly without paying any attention to it, and you would be wrong to do so, but nevertheless, you might have done so, what, in the time of midterms and so on. But do people remember it at all? Like, its content, how it's structured, even slightly. Remember what? The poem. Which one? Epithalamian. Oh. On page 144. Oh, it, it's like... Oh, you don't have page 144. No, but I have it. It, yes. Do you know the full title? <laughs> no, I don't know the full title yet. <laughs> I'll know it soon. All right. So... Uh, <laughs> All right. I'm going to assume that you have, in fact, all read it. It's in like ten lines. It's a cut. It's a, like broken up into stages of. In, yeah, in eight-line stanzas. Oh, it's eight. Oh, I yeah. miscounted. That's okay. Okay. Um, <laughs> can have anyone. Um, <laughs> just making sure we're on the same page here. We might not be there. It begins though thou hast passed thy summer standing. No. Okay. I didn't miscount. Okay. All right. I'm just.
Okay, well, the basic idea in the poem, it's quite lovely and quite graceful, is that it's an address to the sun saying, stop sun and look down at this wedding because that's the most dazzling and radiant thing you can see is this marriage that's taking place today. And if you want to see what real light looks like, sun, um, look at this wedding. Um, so it begins, have you found it? Okay, though, <laughs> almost. Okay. How do you know it's almost? I don't know, because I see a bunch of odes. I just need to find Okay, it's not an ode. Oh, I thought it was ode on carrying. No, 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 we're going to get to that. Help. Help, yeah. That's by the Beatles. Oh, my God. <laughs> though, or actually, let me ask, help, who's that by? <laughs> though I am young? No, <laughs> though thou hast passed. No, 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 no. I, I don't have it. Oh, my God, this is so <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, and I'm exposing you also. It's okay. To so. quote Rick Deckard in Blade Runner, embarrassing. <laughs> to which M.M. Walsh says, no, sir, not embarrassing. Not to me, because you're going to make it right. So are you making it right? <laughs> okay, well, let me just find it. So take your time because I'm having trouble finding it too. I'm just paging through it until I get there, so don't feel under any pressure to get there. I'm under a lot of duress right now. Oh, look, there it is now. Let's see. I'm going to try to polish my glasses. And, okay, the first stanza begins, just so you know. Okay. <laughs> No, but look for it. I'm looking. I think I found it, but I don't want to. Though thou hast passed thy summer standing, stay a while with us, bright sun, and help our light. Thou canst not meet more glory on the way between thy tropics to arrest thy sight than thou shalt see today. We woo thee. Stay and see what can be seen, the bounty of a king and beauty of his Queen. Um, so it's past Midsummer's Day, is what that means. It's past June 21st. Um, summer standing. What does the word standing there mean? If you're th thinking astronomically? The, the, the sun's position in the sky. Yeah, but it's also when the sun gets as high as it's going to get. So the idea is that if you throw a ball into the air when it reaches what it's called its apogee, um, that is the highest point that it reaches. You toss a ball into the air, and it slows down, and then it hits its highest point, and then reverses direction. When it hits its highest point, it's for an infinitesimal, infinitesimal moment of time, for an instant, it's perfectly still when, it's, when it changes, when it transitions from going up to going down. And the idea of the solstice is that that's... Um, when the sun reaches as high a point as it's going to reach in the sky in the entire year, that's the summer solstice. Um, so the day of the summer solstice is also sometimes called the solstice. That is the longest day of the year. But the solstice is actually the exact moment when the sun is highest overhead. Um, and it's only a moment. That's its standing. It stands there. Solstice means um, sun, sun standing, right? Doesn't it? Isn't it the, the stis so. in solstice is from sto stare, which in Latin means to stand. 
Um, so the sun is past its solstice. It's gotten to the place where it stopped, as in the book of Joshua, but only instantaneously. And then it um, starts, the days start getting shorter again. Um, and it's past the summer solstice. The wedding is occurring after June 21st. Um, I wonder if they give a date for it in the footnotes. Um, well, the date must be known, but it's not footnoted here. Uh, oh, yeah, June 25th, 1632. Um, so it's four days past the solstice. And so um, Johnson notes the date. Though thou hast passed thy summer standing, stay a while with us, bright sun, and help our light. I think those are just two beautiful lines, but also I just wanted you to notice what's going on formally, which is um, how, or I, I wanted to ask you, how are those lines self-describing? How is the first line self-describing? Think enjambment. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, I was just going to say it's the enjambment after stay mm -hmm. that the line pauses there. Yeah. Um, because it ends there. Yeah. So that the, the, the solstice occurs in the first line, but not at, not at its end. That is, you have, though thou hast passed thy summer standing, and that's a pause, it could be a line ending. Though thou hast passed thy summer standing. Um, and now decline to winter's rage. Um, still shall we campaign for Paul Randing oh, <laughs> um, and make to him our pilgrimage. You know, you could imagine a poem. I mean, you can't really, but now you won't be able to get away from it. Um, but you could imagine a poem ending with the word standing. Rhythmically, that works. Though thou hast passed thy summer standing, stay. And um, the line is a little bit different from its own timing, you could say, um, as though the solstice of the line occurs where? Let me ask it even more obviously. What punctuation mark <laughs> would represent the solstice of the line? Comma. Uh, yeah, all right. <laughs> yes, the, <laughs> the pause um, that is the comma. So, though thou hast passed thy summer standing pause, stay, and um, that's how the sun would stay. Um, the staying of the line, the lingering, the staying um, beyond the solstice, um, the line is doing the very thing it describes. Though thou hast passed thy summer standing, stay a while with us, bright sun, and help our light. Um, that is, we already have lots of light from the radiance of what we're seeing, but you should help. You should contribute your own light to our light. Thou canst not meet more glory on the way between thy tropics to arrest thy sight. You can't see anything um, between the two tropics that you go through. Do people know what tropics are with the Tropic of Cancer and Tropic of Capricorn or astronomically? Why, you, why we have those circles on the globe and what it means to go into the tropics? have to do with longitude and latitude? Well, with longitude. I mean, excuse me, with latitude. Yeah, not with longitude. Um, but what in particular? Do you know? Are they the, the, the parts of the circle of the globe that are above and below the equator? Yeah. But why are they drawn there? Does anyone know? Oh, I don't know where that is. Sorry? No, 
This is these, remember this course has an important astronomical component. Some of the astronomy is false like the spheres, but some of it's true. Um, I would argue. So the tropics, you should know this, the tropics are, and because Johnson knows this, um, and Tyler Durden knows this, so you should know it. Um, the tropics are the place where on the solstice, the sun is directly overhead. That's as far north or as far south as you can get where you will ever see the sun directly overhead. Here in Waltham, the sun at noon, even on June 21st, won't be directly overhead, won't be vertically overhead. Um, we never see the sun vertically overhead if we are um, either above the um, north of the tropics or south of the tropics. Um, so where you see the sun directly overhead, that's a tropical region, is the region in the world where at, at least once a year you will see the sun directly overhead. Um, and it, the word tropic there means turn, um, because that's where that the sun gets higher and higher every day as summer comes. Um, it goes higher and higher every day until on the solstice it's directly overhead and then it turns and starts getting lower and lower. And so the tropic, the word tropic means turn, um, and it's where the sun turns. It's as far as the sun will go um, directly overhead, northward or southward. Um, so um, the idea here is that any place that you go between the tropics, um, all the places associated with the solstice, um, you won't see anything like this. There won't be any more glory. No matter how brightly you light up what you're shining on, um, there won't be any more glory than this. Um, do people know what the word trope means? Too much or something? In French. Uh, or maybe in Greek. No, no it's not in Greek. Trope like a character trait? Like a... No. It can be. Is it a person? <laughs> um, so drama. in Hamlet, um, the king says, what call you this play? And Hamlet replies, the mousetrap, marry, how tropically. Um, and so he's making a little pun on the word trap, on, on the word tropic. Or tr but their tropic doesn't mean um, the astronomical feature but it's, a, it's an adverb coming from the word trope. What a trope is is a figure of speech or of thought. Um, it can also be a, um, something like a cliche, a line or a response in um, a church service. Um, and it can also be the music that you set words to. Um, but essentially what it is is it's um, a poetic and um, um, musical term um, that has to do with the way a line functions. So um, generally, you will see it used if you see it used at all. It's one of those words they're going to take off the SAT, I feel sure. But um, you will see it used if you see it used at all um, as um, meaning a figure of speech, um, meaning a poetic turn to things. So that's the idea, that you give a poetic turn. Trope means turn to trope means to turn and to give a poetic turn to things or a figurative turn to things is to trope on them. Um, so here Johnson is using the word tropic um, partly because of its poetic meaning um, as well as its astronomical meaning. So um, 
so he's troping on the idea of the tropics here, troping on the idea of trope. Um, Though thou hast passed thy summer standing, stay a while with us, bright sun, and help our light. Thou canst not need more glory on the way between thy tropics to arrest thy sight than thou shalt see today. So the idea is nothing that you see will stop your sight. That's a figure of speech. That's what That arrested my sight. But here he's pushing hard on the word arrest, meaning what? What does it mean in French? Oh, French speakers? Stop. To stop, yeah. Um, arrêter means to stop, so nothing to stop you, to stop your sight. Um, so the sun is looking, and it will stop to look if it looks at something amazing, and the amazing thing is this wedding. So stay here, be arrested, look at what you're seeing today. We woo thee, stay. So there is this idea of wooing going on as a kind of introduction to the idea of the wedding, and see what can be seen, the bounty of a king and beauty of his queen. That is, the king and queen are present for this wedding. And so here, O oh son, you can see something really worth looking at. This wedding, its glory, the king and the queen present here. Um, so I think it's a, just a beautiful first stanza, and I think the whole poem lives up to it. Um, but it's also worth noticing in talking about the structure of the poem um, that what he does, which is, again, he gets to some extent from Spencer, is having called on the sun to stay, to view the wedding, to watch it all, um, after enough time has passed and enough stanzas have gone by, he'll call on the sun to set. Now it's time to go away so that it can be nighttime so that the bride and the groom can um, go about and repopulate their families. Um, and so the whole idea, the whole structure of the poem is this address to the sun, and first the desire for it to stay, and then the um, plea for it to be gone, to um, let night come. And again, the idea is not, usually if you talk about the sun at solstice and talk about you know the bright summer days, um, there's always an implication that that's temporary and therefore sad. Um, that um, in the midst of summer we are in winter, um, which is certainly true in Waltham. Um, <laughs> that the meaning of summer is the coming of winter. Um, but for what Johnson is doing is turning that into um, daytime is good and so is nighttime. They're both good. Um, and they're both good because daytime is the time of the wedding and nighttime is the time of its consummation. And um, I think he's just really, really brilliant at doing that um, in this poem. It's, it's really a lovely poem. Okay, let's go back to the Carrie Morrison Ode. Um, and um, its full title is, anyone remember? To the immortal memory and friendship of that noble pair, Sir Lucius Carey and Sir H. Morrison. Um, and uh, what you need to know about this ode is um, that Carey is alive and Morrison is dead. Morrison died young. Um, they both died young, but Carey died after Johnson, so he didn't know that. Um, but um, I think it's worth remembering that um, letter about the Trinity in thinking about this ode, which is a very 
essentially non-religious and non-theological, um, but nevertheless is about not only the friendship between two people, um, Carrie and Morrison, but the friendship um, with a third person, the third person of this tri of this of this tripartite friendship is Johnson himself. Um, so Carrie and Morrison were best friends. Um, Carrie ended up marrying Morrison's sister after Morrison died. Um, and um, they apparently had a really intense literary friendship. Um, that is, they cared about um, what they talked about, what they cared about was literature and philosophy and things of the mind, and um, Johnson loved that. Um, and um, what he's doing here is he's writing a Pindaric ode, um, and he's explicitly um, writing uh, um, an ode in the form of Pindar's odes. Yeah, these are in the in the um, ten line turns and counter turns. So the turn in Greek, the word for turn is strophe, um, and you knew that. Strophe. Well, I think I knew that one. Yeah, and the counter turn is the antistrophe, antistrophe, and then there's um, what Johnson calls the stand, which is the epode. Um, in Pindaric odes, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't no, no, no. I just, I just wanted to say that it, it might help to think that originally the ode structure was derived from dance, so there would be in the Greek stage the odes were originally um, um, uh, parts that the chorus would present, and they would move around on the stage, and so the part of them would speak the turn, and then part of them would speak the counter turn, and they would move in a kind of in a dance, like yeah, and and um, the Pindaric odes were came into English um, through Johnson and through some of his contemporaries. Um, what this is what we talked about a little bit on Tuesday. What um, a lot of people liked was that the ode allowed for irregularity in English. Um, Pindar's odes actually weren't irregular. Um, they had complicated but very, very regular um, structures. And here Johnson is following that. That's why you're noticing that the stanzas, um, the, the strophe and the antistrophe are 10 lines long and um, the epode is 12 lines long. I think that's true all the way out, all the way through. And what you can see is that um, if you look at the stand at line 21, you have, for what is life if measured by the space not by the act. Compare that to line 53. Go now and tell our days summed up with fears and make them years. Um, and so you have a long line followed by a short line, followed by a long line, followed by a short line. Um, and so the, the metrical structure tends to be regular. On the other hand, you will also notice that um, for what is life if measured by the space, not by the act, or masked man if valued by his face above his fact, is rhyming A-B-A-B. Whereas in the next stand, go now and tell out days summed up with fears and make them years, produce thy massive miseries on the stage to swell thine age, is rhyming A-A-B-B. Um, so metrically, they have the same structure, but the rhyme scheme isn't the same. Um, that's partly because Greek poetry didn't rhyme. So he can follow the form of a Pindaric ode without having to worry um, or with allowing himself the variation that what English poetry does, which is to rhyme. 
um, permits him, even though um, because he he doesn't have to pay any attention to a Greek model when Greek poetry didn't rhyme. Um, most Western poetry didn't rhyme until about the year 1000. Um, rhyme was, uh, this is something we'll talk about a little bit when we get to Milton, but rhyme is a modern, not by our standards modern, but by the history of the West modern. Um, rhyme in the West is a modern innovation. Um, and ancient poetry, except for doggerel of some sorts, didn't rhyme. Um, and uh, the coming into um, poetry of rhyme um, allows for a lot of novel um, ideas for how to do poetry. As I say, Johnson is introducing the ode into English um, and the kinds of things you get in Wordsworth and in Keats and in Shelley. Um, those are ideas that Johnson is the originator of. So he begins with a classical reference. Um, do people remember from their reading of the footnote um, what the brave infant of Saguntum did? Okay, well, he'll tell you. Brave in, so the turn, that is the first um, gesture. Um, turn might also be thought of as trope. Um, brave infant of Saguntum, that's the addressee of the poem, clear thy coming forth in that great year. Um, clear there is an adjective. That is, the way you came forth was with exceptional clarity. Clear was by coming forth in that great year when the prodigious Hannibal did crown his rage with raising your immortal town. So the child, the infant of Saguntum, was born when Hannibal was burning down Saguntum. And what that infant did, thou looking then about, ere thou wert half got out, wise child, didst hastily return and madest thy mother's womb urn. Um, so the little story that he's telling is that a child was being born as Hannibal was burning down the town, looked around, um, said, this looks really pretty horrible, went back into the womb and died. Um, kind of a horrible story. Um, Johnson is getting it from Pliny. Um, and he's saying, you did the right thing. <laughs> that was smart of you. Um, why? Because look what Hannibal was doing. It was terrible. Um, he was showing why Thomas Harris was going to name Hannibal Lecter after him. Um, how summed a circle didst thou leave mankind of deepest lore could we the center find? So you gave us a, a lesson um, that why a circle, this is actually a little bit of a puzzle in the poem, but I think we could say um, at least this, that um, by doing that, by looking at the world and returning to the womb, looking at what Hannibal was doing and returning to the womb, it's as though you drew a circle around all human experience. What you did embraces all human experience, um, sums up all human experience, um, and we would know everything we needed to know about life if we could work out how the structure of that circle. So, Abby, is your hand up? No, okay. Um, so, a strange invocation of the infant who um, died um, before even 
before being more than half born. Um, so says the turn, then the counter turn um, replies, did wiser nature draw thee back from out the, out the horror of that sack? Um, that is, so Hannibal is sacking Saguntum and wiser nature, um, the wisdom of nature drew you back. Um, there's a little pun on the word sack there. That is, it's um, the sacking of the city, but also a sack. Um, you wouldn't go into the sack that is our universe um, when you saw that what it contained was the sacking of the city. Yeah? I'm also kind of like comparing or twisting, like, he's coming, like, kind of being like the sack of the womb. It's like the sack of the world, so it's like a twisted. Right. Word. Yeah. Or given the two possibilities, you know, you, it's, it's um, one sack or the other. Um, and the sack of the world, it's not freedom. It's um, a sack and a worse sack than the one you were coming out of. Um, so did wiser nature draw thee back from out the horror of that sack where shame, faith, honor, and regard of right lay trampled on? The deeds of death and night urged, hurried forth, and hurled upon the affrighted world. So that's what happened when Hannibal was sacking the town, that all these things, shame, faith, honor, regard of right, that is caring about what's right, were trampled on. And instead, it was the deeds of death and night were what Hannibal was urging, hurried forth and hurled upon the affrighted world. Sword, fire, and famine with fell fury met. Um, what Dunn poem does this remind you of? Oh, uh, when he lists yeah, off the ways people die. Yeah, 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 yeah. At the round earth's imagination. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let me mourn a space. That one. Yeah. No, it's similar. Um, so sword, fire, and famine with fell fury met, and all on utmost ruin set, as could they. And then this um, this amazing, depressing moment. As could they, but life's miseries foresee. No doubt, all infants would return like thee. So um, you could see it right away, what Hannibal was doing to the town. Um, any infant that could see what all of life was going to be like would see that that's life, that all Hannibal was doing is what happens to everyone um, by virtue of being alive, that any infant would return. What's the line from there? We come crying. crying. I will preach to thee, Mark, um, when we first smell the air we bawl and cry that we are come to this great stage of fools. But I'm also reminded of <laughs> a typical Freudian um, moment of sardonic humor when he turned 60. Um, he said, had I known what it would be like to celebrate my 60th birthday, I would not have celebrated my first birthday with yeah. such joy. <laughs> um, Part of, part of what's overdone about that is that no, one's, no one remembers their first birthday. It's not, celebrates. Yeah. Right. Ooh, I'm one, I'm one. Because um, they're second or third, maybe, but it wouldn't have been rhetorically as powerful. So, well, I wouldn't have liked my third birthday. So <laughs> that clown, I don't know. I found him kind of scary. Um, but that, that wouldn't be Freud's point. Pedantic three-year-old. Yes. <laughs> um, so... He mentions the infant of Secundum 
Um, Saguntum, because it's um, his experience represents um, what he sees is what the world is really like, and that's why he wants to die immediately. And that's what gets us to um, the um, description of the world that Johnson lives in, in the stand. For what is life if measured by the space, not by the act? Um, paraphrase that. It's, I just I was reading Kant's dissertation on like space and time or something, and it kind of reminds me of that. You were? Yeah, I okay. love him, and it kind of reminds me of this. It's like, what it, like, is space? Space isn't an objective thing. It's like things that we do mm-hmm. make, like, the act of what we do creates space, or the relativity of space. Yeah, um, so that's certainly the case that um, extension, um, Kant will say, is a projection of the human mind. Um, but here he's, um, that's consistent with what he's asking here, um, but he's saying what's the best way to measure the value of life? Is it length? What do you think? No. Trick question. <laughs> do you think it's length that makes a life valuable? What do you think? No. So what does make a life valuable then? It's it's, yeah, it's what you do and not how long you live. So the answer to that rhetorical question, what is life if measured by the space, not by the act, is nothing. Um, it doesn't really matter how long you live. What matters is what you do. Um, for what is life if measured by the space, not by the act, or masked man if valued by his face above his fact? What does that mean? Like you take people, you don't actually... Like, what would life be if, I mean, do you measure life by um, how long it is or by what you do, or do you measure a man by what he seems like or what he actually is, or like what he looks like? Yeah, so masked there means um, that any face is a mask. That is, that <laughs> what we are is not what our faces show, it's what we are inside. Um, also, the implication is that um, people will mask themselves, will try to disguise themselves. Um, out of fear or manipulation or desire or whatever. Um, but you don't value people by what they look like, and you don't value life by how long it is. Now, how does that follow from the infant of, of, of Saguntum? That is, we have a four at line 21. So here's this infant, saw the world, went back to the womb, so would every child, because after all, what is life if measured by the space? I think it does follow, but you have to think about it for, for a little while. Yeah, Taylor. Okay, so what the child did was quite quite an act. I mean, an act in a good sense. The child, um, the child did a heroic and, um, or at least piercingly insightful act, um, preferring not to be in the kind of world that Hannibal represented, which is the kind of world we live in. The child saw that immediately, um, and therefore, um, we call him the brave infant of of Saganta. Um, he did this brave thing. 
which is looked at the world, saw how things stood, and did the only thing that um, a rational person would do, even though it was scary, which is return to the womb to die. Um, yeah. I'm sorry, I keep interrupting. No. I, I was wondering if it, it actually it's just it like home. could be. <laughs> it's true. See, I'm used to doing this. Um, if it could be taken in a slightly different way also, um, which is it would be logical to return immediately to the womb if you thought about life the way the infant would think about it, not being experienced. Mm -hmm. So the infant would think it's a life that's measured by space. The infant, in other words, comes into the world and sees that it's a, these, that it's a terrible world and thinks that it's a world of suffering and endurance mm -hmm. and not a world in which it's possible to do something. Mm -hmm. You have to have a certain amount of experience to understand that there is something you can do with life besides just experience violence. Mm -hmm. You can act. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah, going off that, I was going to say that um, that's what he saw. You can look at look at it like, I mean, look at this line, if value by his face, or, or even... Um, space, like he saw what he saw, he thought was that's all that there was, and so he ran back. But like you said, he was he's like naive and didn't understand that there's more than that than there was appearing to be. Yeah. Um. Well, I just have a question. So, is like knowing and understanding an act? Um. You mean the infant knowing yeah. what the world is like? Um, is that, um, well, I would say that it's, so we may have a disagreement here, but I would say that it's, um, it's the insight that leads to an act. Um, that is, it, it is a strange, um, it is a strange transition, and I think that's what, what we're working on. But um, I would say that the uh, basic idea, although, it's a, although it, it gets complicated very fast, but the basic idea is, here we can praise an infant who was alive mm -hmm. for the space of, you know, who had been born or only half born, mm -hmm. and therefore part of our world for 20 seconds. Um, and um, that's a life worth memorializing, mm -hmm. um, not because of the face of the infant um, and not because the infant lived a long time, but because of the insight and the immediate action that the infant had upon um, having that insight, the brave action that he undertook as soon as he had that insight. And so we can celebrate this 22nd infant. You know, this would be the shortest lived hero in the history of humanity. And in a sense, that might be why Johnson is picking him out, that of all the notable persons in history, <laughs> this infant had the shortest life. Um, 20 seconds versus, you know, Jesus, who had 33 years to do what he was doing, and Alexander, who had 30 years to do what he was doing, and Socrates, who had 70 years to do what he was doing, and then the infant of Segunda, who did what he was doing in 20 seconds. Um, and... Um, quick work. Quick work, yeah. <laughs> Um, I came, I saw, I left. Um, and um, whereas Caesar, it took 58 years or however old he was. Um, so um, I think that that's the primary meaning of the four, and I think that that's what you're suggesting. Um, I wasn't suggesting anything. I was just trying to think it through. Okay. Um, but I also think that um, 
it probably, there probably is a slippage here, like the metonymic slippages we've been looking at um, primarily in Dunn, but that there probably is a slippage here to the way um, um, Laura and Nikki are describing things, which is that um, if you um, look at the world um, as a place of space and of habitation, rather than a place of doing something, you're looking at it the wrong way. And um, that there is a possible way of, another way of being courageous, which is to enter the world, even if it is the world, that, um, that most infants would leave immediately if they could see what was happening. Um, but some won't. They'll still cope with the world and do some amazing things in the world, even though it's a world of sack and pillage and ruin. Yeah. There might be a different meaning. Um, there might have been a different meaning, but I don't see how what he did is brave. Um, it's brave in the sense of um, the coward dies a thousand deaths. Um, that is, he saw what the world was like. Um, he decided he wasn't going to... Um, try and um, fearfully get through it moment by moment, um, but that he would simply reject it. So it's the, the idea, you may not agree with it, but the idea is, is that um, it's, a, a, it's a grand gesture of refusal um, where most people would be too cowardly <coughs> to refuse. Um, most people would say, well, it's kind of yucky, but I have no choice. And he decided it's yucky and I do have a choice. So I think that's the claim. Yeah. You don't have to agree with it. I just don't think. He, how do you know? Because he's going back. He's going back to the womb. Doesn't mean he dies necessarily. Well, it? It, but the womb is his urn. Oh, okay. Um, okay. That is, and made thy mother's womb thine urn. Okay. Yeah. And also, just like um, to say why it can be brave by saying it's a good thing to go. Like it was a brave thing to go back into the womb. It's saying like if you let yourself be born into the world, then you're complicit in the horrible things that happen. Uh huh. Yeah. Simply by the fact mm-hmm. of being born. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Good. Um, so he, yeah. So he's refusing this world. Yeah. yeah. It is a transvaluation, though. I mean, a reversal of values, because usually we think a, a suicidal, right, as a cowardly act would be described as a cowardly act. But this, he's turning it around. Yeah. I mean, he's not the first person to do it, but it is a reversal. Yeah. Oh, was I mean, sorry. I, I, I was going to relate it back to Hamlet, but then that might be a stretch. The entire, you know, Lord not fixed his canon against self-slaughter. Yeah. Whereas I guess you could take, in this context, taking the infant saying, well, even, even, oh, well, that would be pushing it even further because it would be mean an implicit knowledge of God's will saying, would make it an act of theological defiance saying, even though the Lord has fixed his canon against self-slaughter, I'm, I'm going to go through with it anyways. Yeah. Well, that's why he goes to a classical rather than a Christian source, where um, in the classical tradition, suicide is often regarded as an act of bravery, um, as a refusal of tyranny, for example, and um, a way that it's the, the coward um, who slavishly will accept anything in order to live, will accept any um, torture, any oppression, <coughs> any... Um, compromise in order to live, but um, Cato will um, commit suicide in order to to thwart um, the um, the tyrant. Um, although he's actually compelled to commit suicide, but still, not Cato. Doesn't Cato kill himself? 
Not Cato the Younger, who, no, who killed himself because um, uh, because he lost to is it Augustus Caesar? I yeah, that's exactly. right. Yeah. I think that's right. So rather than um, go back in defeat, rather than accept Augustus Caesar's taking over the Roman Republic, he killed himself. Yeah. But that's because he couldn't. He didn't. He refused the political. The, the end of the republic. It yes, was, it was his way of saying, "I don't want to live in a world where there isn't a Roman republic." Anymore. Right, and and the idea that you know um, when Antony says that he's going to die like a Roman, um, when Mark Antony says that, that means he's going to kill himself. He's going to show the courage to kill himself. So in cla- in 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 classical morality, um, especially Roman morality, suicide is regarded as um, an act of of courage. Um, whereas in Christian morality, it's regarded, um, and in modern morality, it's regarded as an act of cowardice. Um, and it depends on the circumstance, but here Johnson is playing with the idea of suicide as an act of courage. Um, so compare that infant to, in line 25, here's one outlived his peers and told forth four score years. So how old did that guy live to be? Was 80s. Yeah, good. Um, so here's one outlived his peers and told forth four score years. He vexed time and busied the whole state, troubled <coughs> both foes and friends, but ever to no ends. What did this stirrer, <laughs> such a great word, you stirrer, <laughs> what did this stirrer but die late? So what did he do in his whole life? except to die too, too late. Mm. Um, oh, look at what he did. Man, he really did something. He lived to 80. Did he do anything else? No. Sorry. Um, and there's a pun there, dilate. What's the pun? Dilate. To dilate. Like yes. Yeah. yeah. Centimeters dilated. Well, no. <laughs> I, I, I don't know, but I don't think that they use the word dilate medically then. Yeah. Um, but... Um, it means it, it literally means to um, to extend to to um, increase the length or um, area of so, or time of so um, uh, to dilate is just to is just to keep things going. So what did he do but dilate? Um, troubled both foes and friends. Um, so it's not only that his foes were thinking, God, when will he ever die so that we can do these bad things? But even his friends are thinking, Oh no. Um, but ever to no ends, what did this stir but dilate? How well at 20 had he fallen or stood for three of his four score, he did no good. <laughs> so if he died at 20, or if he'd done something courageous at 20, um, that would have been fine. But the next 60 years were pointless. Um, so take it to heart, guys. <laughs> You're like at the very at the extreme limit of your capacity to do anything in the world. Yeah, I know. When I turned 28 years ago, it was just (laughs) okay. So that's the contrast: the infant of um, Saguntum, and then the 80-year-old man. The turn then um, describes him some more. He entered well by virtuous parts got up and thrived with honest arts. He purchased friends and fame and honors then, 
and had his noble name advanced with men. So he did really good things when he was an idealistic youth. Again, take this to heart. But weary of that flight, doing all these idealistic things, working for social justice, but uh. weary of that flight, he went to business. I mean, he stooped in all men's <laughs> sight. Um, so he flew high, but then he stooped in all men's sight to sordid flatteries, acts of strife, and sunk in that dead sea of life so deep as he did then death's waters sup, but that the cork of title buoyed him <laughs> up. Um, so the idea, the joke in the last line is, so he, was, he, was, he had a title, he was an important person, he was, um, after all, he was the Duke of Bungay, or whatever he was the Duke of, um, and so that buoyed him up on the sea of life um, like a life preserver. But the really crucial line is that he sunk in, in that dead sea of life, that oxymoron, that, it's, that life is like the dead sea. It's water um, like the dead sea, but it's water where nothing can live. Life itself is a sea where nothing can live. And he sunk so deep as he did then death's waters sup. So that so deep that he would be sup, supping on death's waters, which is so the sea of life turns out to be filled with the waters of death. That's what the metaphor is here. Not the waters of life, but the waters of death are the contents of the sea of life. And he would have died um, when he stopped being idealistic. Um, he would have he would have turned into what he was in his soul, a dead person except that he had this title and therefore got to strut around in the House of Lords. Um, so Johnson is possibly thinking of a particular person um, that he would expect his readers to know, but possibly also thinking of a kind of person. And um, it's a kind of emperor's new clothes thing, which well, is that you had better not say, I'm insulted that you described me this way, because then you would be <laughs> saying, obviously you can tell that he's describing me. Um, so um, there's, there's a powerful satirical moment there. Um, the counter turn, alas, but Morrison fell young. So that is, um, Henry Morrison did die young. Um, he died in his 20s. Um, I guess he was 20, yeah. Alas, but Morrison fell young. He never fell, thou falst my tongue. So the counter turn itself has a turn within it. Um, he didn't fall. It's my tongue that's falling. He stood, a soldier to the last right end, a perfect patriot and a noble friend, but most a virtuous son. All offices were done by him so ample, full, and round, in weight, in measure, number, sound, as though his age imperfect might as though his age imperfect might appear, his life was of humanity, the sphere. Um, so even though he died young, um, you know, it, he didn't die in battle. You may think that from this, but he didn't. It wasn't that um, he died in some patriotic endeavor. Um, he died young, um, as people did, um, but nevertheless, it's not a tragedy because he was so perfect in life. Um, and so um, he was of humanity, the sphere, that should remind you of the circle of the infant. That is, he surrounded everything that mattered to humanity. Um, is it spear as opposed to sack? 
Yes. Yeah, nice. Yeah. Um, then the stand again. Go now and tell out days summed up with fears and make them years. So, you know, go count how long your days, all of them full of fears, are and make them years. Produce thy massive miseries on the stage to, sweat, to swell thine age. So here's a really interesting set of similes and metaphors that Johnson is using to describe what um, people do in order to live a long time. Um, they want every day to last, even though what that means is it's every day is full of fears and each day feels like it's a year long because there's so many fears in it. Um, and to try to live a long time and to arrange your life so that you live a long time is like being a playwright and you bring all your characters on stage, the characters that somehow represent your life. And what are those characters? Produce thy massive miseries on the stage. Um, that is, keep um, pulling your miseries in because that's the way you live. Um, produce thy massive miseries on the stage to swell thine age. Um, the word swell there is something that you do on stage. That is, it's um, getting all the actors on stage at the, at, available on stage at the same time to show a crowd to make it look like a really um, um, uh, impressive show. So, okay, so you try to live a long time by bringing all your miseries out and mm -hmm. saying, oh, God, life, it's so hard. I have sciatica, and I have this cold, and I've had it all week, and my kids don't write to me, and it's just, that's the best that people can come up with um, to, sh to make their lives seem rich, to make their lives seem like there's a lot of stuff in their lives, to make them, their lives feel like they're full of content is essentially just to pile up their miseries and to dwell on them, their fears and miseries. Um, repeat of things a throng. This is all a description of old age. Um, Johnson himself at, at this point being um, pushing 60 um, while he's talking about Carrie who's in his um, 20s and Morrison who died at 20. Um, so yeah, okay, you want to live a long time? Good, go do this. Go now and tell out days summed up with fears and make them years. Produce thy massive miseries on the stage to swell thine age. Um, next time one of your grandparents is grumpy, <laughs> think of this. Um, repeat of things a throng to show thou hast been long, not lived. So show you've been long, but he doesn't say, you might expect to say show that you've been long lived. You know, that's the um, grumpy old man character on Saturday Night Live. Do you remember him? You should, you should find it on, on Hulu it's the, or, on, or, or on whatever, um, NBC.com. Uh, there used to be a great character on Saturday Night Live known as the grumpy old man who would say, in our day, we didn't have cash machines. You got a check, and then you went to the bank, and you stood in line for your entire lunch hour to cash it. And that's the way it was, and you liked it. <laughs> um, and that's his repeated line, is that's the way it was, and you liked it. In our day, we didn't have cell phones. You wanted to call someone, you leaned out the window, and you screamed. And if they didn't hear you, everyone else did. And that's the way it was, and you liked it. You kids, you don't know the value of a buck. Um, Who played that character? I don't even remember. 
um, some old man, some grumpy <laughs> old man. Or think of the grumpy old man on The Simpsons. Um, so um, that's what Johnson is describing here. Go now and tell out days summed up <coughs> with fears and make them years. Produce thy massive miseries on the stage, swell thine age. Repeat of things a throng to show thou hast been long, not lived, for life doth her great actions spell by what was done and wrought in season and so brought to light. So it doesn't show you've had a long life if you talk about how things used to be and how cranky you are about the way things are now and how you don't get music videos and these films are stupid um, and how can people watch TV anyhow. Um, that doesn't show that, you, that you're long-lived because life is, again, the acts within it. Um, her measures are, that is, life's measures are, how well each syllable answered and was formed. How fair. These make the lines of life, and that's her air. So you should make your life not into a play where you get all the most grotesque characters, just pile them up, but actually into a poem, into as beautiful a poem as you can. Um, that's what her measures are, that is her meter, her poetic measures, are how well each syllable answered, each syllable was well placed and was formed. How fair, these make the lines of life, so poetic lines as well as lifelines. These make the lines of life and that's her air, that is her melody. Um, I don't understand the footnote here, um, but it means the melody when you sing in air. Um, I mean, I don't understand why it doesn't say it's on the footnote. Um, and then very famous stanza, it is not growing like a tree in bulk doth make man better be, or standing long an oak 300 year to fall a log at last, dry, bald, and sear. A lily of a day is fairer far in May, although it fall and die that night. It was the plant and flower of light. In small proportions we just beauties see, and in short measures life may perfect be. Um, so that's probably the most famous stanza in the poem. Um, and again, it's the contrast between um, extension, withering out misery as long as possible, to perfection. The counterturn now finally addresses Lucius, that is Carrie, um, having talked about this, the fact that Morrison has already died. Here's his best friend, Lucius. Call noble Lucius then for wine, and let thy looks with gladness shine. That is, be happy. Let thy looks with gladness shine. Accept this garland, plant it on thy head, and think, nay, no, thy Morrison's not dead. So take this garland, um, this poem, which I'm weaving for you, this garland at the party, call for wine, um, be happy, <coughs> and think, don't think that he's dead. In fact, know that he isn't. He leapt the present age, possessed with holy rage, to see that bright eternal day of which we priests and poets say such truths as we expect for happy men. So he left this world to go to a better world. Remember, Johnson has had the same idea in what poem about someone dead in this world, why that's not a bad thing? Or with his daughter. Mm -hmm. Both. 
um, the, the epitaph on his daughter, on my first daughter and on my first son. Um, and it's a comforting thought that usually doesn't work, but it's meant to be comforting, which is, well, they're in a better place. Um, and that's what he's now telling um, Carrie <coughs> to think of Morrison. And then you get to this amazing moment, which just shows how much this ode really is um, about It's even hard to say that it's about himself, but how personal the ode is for him. Um, to see that bright eternal day of which we priests and poets say such truths as we expect for happy men. And there he lives with memory and Ben, and then, the, then we keep going into the stand, Johnson. So there he lives with memory and Ben. That's a pretty surprising rhyme. Um, and there he lives with memory and Ben, and it turns out not only does does um, not only do we get that surprising line rhyme, but the sentence doesn't end there, um, but goes into the next stanza, which is an extremely unusual thing to do. Uh, he's, he's leaping. He's leaping precisely, um, leaping into the next stanza, and there he lives with memory, and Ben Johnson who sung this of him ere he went himself to rest. So he lives with memory, and he lives with Ben Johnson, who's producing a posthumous poem. That is, here, here's this poem which Ben Johnson sung before he died, writes the living Ben Johnson, <laughs> knowing that it will still be saying this after he's died. And so, and there, so such truths as we expect for happy men, and there he lives with memory and Ben Johnson, who sung this of him, ere he went himself to rest, or taste a part of that full joy he meant to have expressed in this bright asterism. Um, so ere he went himself, either to rest or to taste a part of that full joy, he meant to have expressed <coughs> in this bright asterism. Yeah. No, no. Uh, um, where um, he now is in this place, this um, realm of the stars. Um, you know what an asterisk is, right? Yeah. It's a star. Um, it's a it's a sig siglum that looks like a star. So the, an asterism is. Um, a formation of stars. The note will tell you constellation, um, but not in the astro eh, maybe in the astronomical sense too. Um, so Johnson sung this before he went to this bright asterism, this region of stars. Remember that um, since this is an astronomy class, uh, Johnson didn't know stars were suns. Um, almost no one did at the time, um, but went to this this bright place where. It were friendship's schism, were not his Lucius long with us to tarry, to separate these twilights, the Dioscuri, and keep the one half from his Harry. Okay, that's really hard um, to parse. That is, it's syntactically hard until you get it. Um, <coughs> but essentially, it's um, Lucius is dead. I mean, Lucius is alive, Morrison is dead, I, Ben Johnson, am dead. 
Um, at least now I am. And it would be a schism of friendship, this fact that Morrison is dead but Carrie's alive would be a schism of friendship where it were, that is, that's a subjunctive, it would be friendship's schism, were not his Lucius long with us to tarry if it weren't the case that when he dies, Carrie is going to um, be here in this bright asterism with us for a long, long time. So the fact that they're separated now because Morrison is dead but Carrie is alive is, would be friendship's schism if Carrie weren't going to be coming soon and spending forever with Morrison. It would be friendship schism to separate these twilights. Um, so twilights there means um, a pair of lights. It doesn't. Our word twilight means when there are two kinds of lights simultaneously. That is daylight and nightlight. You could say starlight at the same time. Um, it's between, but it's also two. The T W formation in English means two, as in the word two as in the word twain, as in the word twice, and as in the word between, which is between two things. It's within two. Same with twilight. Um, twilight is a doubling of light, night light and daylight. Um, but here, twilight is meaning something like um, two lights together. Um, and um, so it's not a it's not, although there may be um, a resonance of the end of day, um, it's more like two stars that are right together, like the constellation of the Dioscuri, who are whom? Oh, footnote Twin. readers. Twins. Twin Grecian and Roman gods. Yeah, Castor and Pollux. Yeah. Um, so they are um, two stars in heaven that are called the Dioscuri. Um, are you looking skeptical? No, no, no. Oh, okay. Um, um, and they're twins, and they're the twins, Castor and Pollux. Um, one of whom was mortal and one immortal, right? That's right. They but were brothers of Helen of and Troy, yeah. uh, Clytemnestra. Yeah. They were sons of Zeus. Sons and of Zeus. Leda. Sons of Zeus. Okay, okay. Sons of Zeus. And Leda. Who appeared as a swan to Leda and impregnated her. Yeah. But how did it go that one was immortal? What, yeah, just the way Helen's immortal and Clytemnestra is mortal. I can't remember which one. Either Castor or Pollux is mortal and the other is immortal. And when the mortal one died, dies, the immortal one was so prayed, yeah. um, crushed with grief that the gods turned them both into a constellation. I think Castor's the mortal one. I was going to say, I think that, yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. Okay, so yeah. So the idea here is it's a perfect um, um, uh, symbol for them because one is dead and one is alive. Um, and also perfect because <coughs> it's not clear which would be which. Mm -hmm. That is, is the dead one the immortal one? Um, or is the live one like the immortal one because the immortal one is the one who's alive? Um, but it doesn't matter because they will be together. And then what is Johnson doing with um, his language here? To separate... Twilight, to separate the word. Yeah, yeah. This is one of the vanishingly rare occasions in any English poem where you have a hyphenated... Um, you have a hyphen at the end of the line. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you can say more. Well, just to separate the starlight and keep one half on like one 
Right, exactly. Yeah, so the, the hyphen is separating, um, and they're cut in half over the course of the, the enjambment of the line. There's um, what Philip Pullman would call um, an intercision occurring there. Um, but it won't last long. They'll be reunited. It'll feel so good. Um, so it were friendship schism if they were separated, um, the way the line separates them. But fate doth so alternate the design, whilst that in heaven this light on earth must shine. So right now one light is shining in heaven and one is shining on earth. And that alternation of design is again like the poem. That is the turn, the counter turn. Um, it's as though now we see why he's writing this, this ode in the form of an ode, which is that you have the separation of turn and counter turn and then the reunion in the stand. So you turn one way, turn the other way, and then stand together. Um, and hence you should be noticing the word stand throughout the poem, whether he stand or st whether he fell or stood. Um, and shine as you exalted are, they both shine, and shine as you exalted are, two names of friendship, but one star. Again, there's a pun in the word star, which is the infinitive in Latin for the word stand. Sto stare. Um, I stand to stand. And shine as you exalted are two names of friendship, but one star of hearts, the union, and those not <coughs> by chance made or indentured or leased out to advance the profits for a time. No pleasures vain did chime of rhymes or riots at your feasts, orgies of drink or feigned protests, but simple love of greatness, that is of great things, and of good that knits brave minds and manners more than blood. So it wasn't that you were like two words that rhyme. Again, he's thinking of the poem itself. It's your connection was much deeper than that. And so notice, therefore, that um, although he rhymes time and chime, this is a rhyme that Herbert is going to use also, the word rhymes itself is taken out of a rhyming context with the two words that rhyme obviously rhymes with, namely time and chime. Yeah. And that just goes back to what we were saying about um, space and the content and then the face and right. what, like, what it actually represents. Yeah, exactly. So like there, It looks like one thing, but it's two. Yeah. Yeah, great. So their friendship was, there's nothing arbitrary or random about it. Um, this was the real thing. And they're knitted, their brave minds are knitted, there's that word brave again, more than blood. This made you first to know the why you liked, then after to apply that liking. So you knew you liked each other and why, and then you applied it, and approached so one the t'other, till either grew a portion of the other, each style it by his end the copy of his friend. So each one wanted to be like the other. They were a kind of self-sustaining pair, each modeling himself on the other. You lived to be the great surnames and titles by which all made claims unto the virtue. Nothing perfect done but as a Carey or a Morrison. So you became what other people wanted to be. And such a force the fair example had as they that saw the good and durst not practiced it we're glad that such a law was left yet to mankind. So here's this question of what you dare to do or not again. And even those who couldn't do what Carrie and Morrison did, 
they weren't jealous. They weren't, they weren't nasty. They were glad that those two people existed. Where they might read and find friendship indeed was written not in words and with the heart, not pen, of two so early men, that is, young men, whose lines, her roles were, and records. Um, so the, um, the lines of their friendship were the roles and records of the deed, who, ere the first down bloomed on the chin, had sowed these fruits and got the harvest in. So they lived this great life. Young as they were, this friendship really mattered. Okay. Um, so, Herrick for Tuesday. Papers? Yay. Or email them, or however. It's just about pie time, you know. Not only pie